Thousands of Catholic baptisms invalidated in the Diocese of Phoenix thanks to a single priest. How does that happen? The Papal Posse, Robert Royal and Father Gerald Murray are here with analysis of that story and much more. Cancel culture and critical race theory are running rampant across America today. Who is behind this often destructive reform and how can we get the country back? Matt Schlapp and Deal Hudson, authors of The Desecrators, will tell us. The World Over begins right now. Raymond DeRoy. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. We have a terrific show for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet, a nice one. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover this evening. Let's get to it. The validity of thousands of baptisms is in question in the Diocese of Phoenix due to the actions of a single priest. While the bishop of the Diocese of Helena, Montana, has effectively banned the celebration of the traditional Latin Mass. Pope Francis continues his curial reforms at the Vatican. To get into all of this and much more is the Papal Posse, editor-in-chief of The Catholic Thing, Robert Royal from Washington, and canon lawyer and priest of the Archdiocese of New York, Father Gerald Murray, joins us from Manhattan. Gentlemen, thank you. Uh, I want to get your reaction to this situation in the Diocese of Phoenix. Bishop Thomas Olmsted uh, announced this week that Father Andres Arango had performed thousands of baptisms using an incorrect formula of the ritual, saying, we baptize you instead of I baptize you. Now, Father Arango resigned from his parish this week. He issued a statement on the diocese's website. It reads, it saddens me to learn that I've performed invalid baptisms throughout my ministry as a priest by regularly using an incorrect formula. I deeply regret my error and how this has affected numerous people in your parish and elsewhere. Father Murray, if one word can invalidate a sacrament, how many other sacraments are invalid? I mean, I've heard innovations at some masses that sound like Ella Fitzgerald scatting. Raymond, you have to use the words that the church gives uh, when administering the sacraments. And the words for validity are, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It's written in the ritual. We're trained to say that in the seminary. So for him to vary that was a conscious decision that he wanted to say something else, perhaps with the implication, we, the community, or we, you know, the, the, in generality, we baptize. That's not valid. That's not what is intended uh, by the church. So uh, you have to stick to what's written because the, the determination of the wording of the sacraments is not up to individual priests. It's up to the Holy See. The Holy See has said what we need to do. So it's very regrettable. People who were baptized by this priest uh, should go to their local parish and request to be baptized uh, validly. Hmm. So, so they're all invalid. Even that one word has invalidated this sacrament. I mean, you'd think after 16 years of service in parishes and going to seminary that the form and the precision of the sacraments would have been imparted. Yes, and that's obviously what uh, this priest did not uh, follow. And, you know, I'm glad that he recognizes his error. It's a shame he didn't start doing the right thing from the beginning. 
But this shows in the church, we all have to cooperate according to what is the law of the church and our responsibilities. And priests are not allowed in church law to change the words of the sacrament, just like they can't change the matter. Let's mm. say somebody wanted to celebrate mass using cookies and Coke. That's an invalid mass. Right. It doesn't matter that the priest thinks that's a good thing to do. Bob, your thoughts on the culture in the church here in the U.S. that would allow this to happen? I mean, when you hear constant refrains about the evils of rigidity, I guess some see this as a corrective innovation. Yeah, the, you know, the details are a bit unclear about where he got the idea that he should be, he, that, that he wanted to say, we baptize. Uh, we, we know mm -hmm. that over the, the past several decades in the church, there have been movements toward communitarian approaches, to put it that way. At one point, we were saying, we believe in one God. You remember that even here in the right. United States, that was a kind of a, a subtle change that no one knows how it happened. It just sort of, to, to ha sort of happened. But I, I'm a little bit encouraged by the way this priest has behaved. Now, we know that he actually taught in a seminary in Brazil, or at least worked in a seminary in Brazil. So he's been exposed to a wide variety of different circumstances. We don't yet know how he got uh, into this particular habit. One of the things I'm encouraged about, though, is he did apologize, and he doesn't seem to, to be uh, a, 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 a dissident. He apologized to the people. He still, his bishop has kept him in good standing in, in the diocese. Um, and mm -hmm. it, it looks like it's just one of those regrettable things that inevitably is going to happen when people think that they have a right to kind of freelance with what the church has been teaching us. Again, I go back to my first question. I am, I am concerned after sitting while I travel the country at certain masses where the priest freelances all kinds of things, and, and they say, you know, we, this community, we gather together and we say and agree, this is your body. I mean, when they start saying, and I've heard those sorts of things, does that mean the mass is invalid, Father Jerry? If you change the words of consecration, yes. Uh, the priest has to read the words as it's written in the Missal. If he changes mm -hmm. them in any way, that invalidates uh, the consecration. Uh, that is mm -hmm. not permitted. As I said, you can't change the matter either. You can't substitute unleavened bread and wine. You have to use those elements and the correct words. So mm -hmm. this is an area where laxism has gotten into the church, as Bob said, and uh, this is a necessary corrective. It's not rigid to follow the law in matters of seriousness, yeah. and that's what we need to well, do this is here. The, this is the downside of condemning uh, rigor or in its, in its ugly characterization, rigidity. Uh, the, the opposite of that is innovation and make it up as you go, and you end up with sad situations like this where thousands of people now are going to have to get rebaptized. They, they're running around thinking they're parts of the church, uh, members of the church, and I guess they are not fully vested yet uh, because of the form here. Interestingly, according to the reports, it was the faithful in the Diocese of Phoenix who brought their concerns to the Chancery, and the Vatican issued a corrective as recent as 2020, indicating that we is not correct in that formula of baptism, Bob. That's a good thing. Yeah, I think it certainly is. And, and um, you know, our tendency is to want to read these things in terms of ideologies, and maybe there, there is something of that going on here. But at the same time, uh, this is kind of a, a, a warning that if you start messing with the creed, you know, there's an old poem of, of uh, Hilaire Belloc's about a child who's messing with the creed and he gets eaten by a lion, and he says, the message is, it is indeed, you shouldn't monkey with the creed. 
and, and um, mm -hmm. these sorts of things, I say again, are they're virtually inevitable because we've seen it everywhere in the church and not only in specific mm -hmm. rites like baptism. Yeah, Father, given the, what we saw in Phoenix, what we see all over the country in, in certain pockets, there are priests taking liberties with various sacraments. Um, the Mass, uh, baptism being probably the most pronounced. What should the faithful do if they encounter something like this? Yeah, if you hear the priest say something that is not according to the ritual, you know, stop him and ask, Father, did you say the right words? Uh, because, the, you know, there's also a possibility in an individual case the priest might stumble and drop a word here or there, not know what he's doing mm -hmm. uh, because of distraction. But if a priest is consciously changing the ritual and particularly the form of the sacraments, that means the words that are used, uh, stop him and say, Father, the book says this, please say that. Mm -hmm. Moving on, I, I want to get your take on Bishop Austin Vetter's decision to cancel all traditional Latin masses in the Diocese of Helena, Montana. Now, this is effective on Ash Wednesday of all days. Uh, this contradicts Vetter's October statement that the traditional Latin mass could continue. No official statement of the new policy has come from the diocese, but LifeSite News reports that Vetter is claiming that Rome, quote, is forcing his hand due to the dubia answered by the Vatican several weeks ago. Uh, Father Jerry, what do you make of this about face here? And does that response, those answers to the dubia uh, by the Vatican, have canonical or legislative force? Well, uh, I regret that the bishops made this decision. I hope he'll reverse it, because the responsa and uh, traditionis custodis do not forbid having the traditional Latin Mass in your diocese. In fact, I've written a commentary, an interview with Diane Montagna on the Remnant website uh, about this whole matter. And bishops have the right and the permission from the Holy See to continue to have the traditional Latin Mass in their diocese. And I would just say, you know, Pastoral sensitivity and Christian love toward those who like the old mass should prevail over any fear that you're going to upset either the Pope or the, or the Vatican congregation by continuing this, because the Pope has not asked for every mass to be abolished immediately. That's not in there. So I think the bishop needs to reconsider his decision. No, it's an interesting point, uh, particularly when we've heard since Vatican II, this is no one person's church, this is the church of the people of God. Well, then why aren't we trying to accommodate the faith of the people of God and those that are willing to turn out? Uh, Bob, the bishop uh, here, he says he has no choice in the matter. Is that true? Well, I, I agree with Father. I don't think that that's true at all. He's, he's being, in a sense, more Catholic than the Pope, if we want to put it that way. The odd thing here, I think, is that the Pope gave us the reason for limiting the uh, Latin masses, that bishops were concerned mm -hmm. about um, the disunity that was coming forward in some places. Uh, from what mm -hmm. we can tell from the surveys that were sent out, they don't seem to have strongly indicated a worldwide problem of disunity, mm -hmm. but let's put that aside for a, a moment. I think that a bishop like Bishop Vetter, if he is going to suppress the Latin Mass, which is not required by Rome, even with these, these strict guidelines now that have been issued, 
If he's going to suppress the Latin mass in his diocese, I think he owes his people a, a, an explanation and probably the, the rest of the country because people look at these things and they begin to assume that in fact the church is no longer going to allow the Latin mass. If he has a problem, let's say he has one particular parish that's created a schism, a, a kind of a quasi-schism in his diocese, well, if he wants to explain that that's the reason why he had to, he, his hand was forced, then fine, he should explain that. But in just in the absence of that, to suppress the Latin mass is to do something that even Rome at this pre present moment has not asked him to do. He has every choice to not do that. Mm -hmm. No, no, that's insightful. And, and the, the pattern, the narrative, if you will, uh, that the mass is somehow forbidden or not allowed any longer in, in Catholic parishes, which is not the case. Um, the pope has certainly restricted the usage, but he hasn't forbidden it. And I think the narrative on the street is, oh, can't do that Latin Mass anymore. Father, uh, th this is another in a series of crackdowns on the Latin Mass. Why this ongoing fear of the traditional Mass upon which the Novus Ordo, the, the new vernacular Mass, is based, and this community of traditional Catholics who just want to worship in this ancient rite? It's hard to understand, Raymond. It's hard to explain. Uh, I think the people against the Latin Mass are largely liturgists in Rome, and people agree with them, who view that everything before the Council was basically needing to be overhauled in a you know, radical mm -hmm. way, and that any reference to the past is somehow unacceptable. Uh, it shouldn't be that way at all. You know, Pope Benedict spoke about the new mass enriching the old and the old mass enriching the new. In other words, by the common experience right. of celebrating both forms, we can celebrate them better. Uh, so mm -hmm. I really, it's, it's something, uh, I just shake my head because the people I know who go to the Latin mass are true Catholics who love the church, and they're not the mm -hmm. causes of disunity. You want cause of disunity, let's talk about the German synodal way. And yet somehow they yeah, continue right. meeting openly with no problems. So it's, it's a mistaken right. and misplaced idea that the unity of the church is being attacked by Latin mass people. It's not. No, they're a cause of hope and faith in the community because they're living out their faith in, in a deep way, it seems to me anyway. But it, it is a curious targeting of the faithful and, to the eye of some, a rupture in that hermeneutic of continuity. This seems the hermeneutic of rupture. Um, let's move on. There's a three-day symposium on the priesthood underway this week at the Vatican. Uh, on the agenda, and this is getting very little coverage, is the role of women in the church and celibacy. At least half a dozen cardinals will be addressing or presiding over these sessions. Cardinal Mark Willette uh, organized the conference, and he says that their aim is to shatter a clericalized concept of the priesthood, and that he sees at the root of uh, these recent scandals in the Church clericalism. Pope Francis opened the proceedings on Thursday, urging priests to keep closeness to God, their bishop, fellow priests, and the people. And he addressed clericalism this way. He said, this sense of belonging will in turn prove an antidote to the distortion of vocation. That happens whenever we forget that the priestly life is owed to others, to the Lord and to the persons he has entrusted to us. Forgetting this is at the root of clericalism and its consequences. Clericalism is a distortion because it's based not on closeness but on distance. When I think of clericalism, I also think of the clericalization of the laity, the creation of a small elite around the priest who end up betraying their own 
essential mission. Uh, Father, what do you make of the Pope's words there? And is clericalism a, or a clericalized version of the priesthood the biggest problem in the church today? Well, I'll say this. I agree with the Pope that clericalism is a problem when it has to do with lording it over others in an unjust way. So using power either as a priest or a bishop, not to serve the people, but to either fleece them or to make use of them for your own personal power. And let's be blunt. The, pre the sex abuse crisis in the clergy has two aspects. One is criminal priests who harm people. They need to be removed from the priesthood. But what about bishops mm -hmm. who protected them and used the money of the faithful to pay off the victims and make them be silent by making them sign non-disclosure agreements? I mean, we have seen a couple of billion dollars in the U.S. being spent to about clerical problems caused by both evil priests and bishops who protected them. So that has to go. Uh, clericalism on that level, bishops have to really be servants of the flock in the way a good shepherd is. Now, I would say the main problem in the priesthood nowadays has to do with a lack of a supernatural spirit, that the priesthood mm. should not be viewed, and the Pope is correct about this, it's not just a managerial job. And the Pope does say in that long address he gave, do priests pray? Do they say their breviary and rosary with attention? Do they look upon their jobs simply as fulfilling roles? So I agree with the Pope. I would call it secularism and naturalism in the priesthood, which is basically say, I'm in charge of religion around here. I'll do it my way. And the answer is no. I represent Christ, the good shepherd. I've been sanctified through holy orders. I have to live a holy life. Hmm. Yeah, and that, that focus on the clericalization of the laity, Bob, um, that was an interesting uh, pivot there in the, in the speech. I want you to talk to that. Also, the Pope never mentions the role of women in the church. The subject is on the agenda, however, uh, and it's related to that synodal way being pushed in, in Germany. The continued discussion of things that are, were essentially closed subjects uh, in hopes of a change or a, 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 an adjustment in teaching, that, that is troubling, no? Yeah, I mean, first to address this question of the clericalization of the laity, of course, that has happened, too, that, as, as many people said, that uh, we, we brought priests down and all of a sudden lay people are inside the sanctuary and it looks like you've got a crowd of mm -hmm. lay and, and, and ordained people up there. I don't, I, I, I don't disagree with this, this uh, pointing to clericalism as a problem. In my experience, though, it, it, at least here in the United States, it's quite the opposite. I, I think that priests are, are quite often gun-shy about presenting the teachings of the church. And, and uh, as a layman, let me just say that I expect my pastor or the, one of the assistants in the parish to teach Catholicism. And there are going to be places where not only is there teaching, but there are decisions that have to be made. And they have to be made in a spirit of charity and in a spirit of service. But, you know, to, to reduce clericalism, even if you assume that it exists somewhere, doesn't mean that the priest is just going to be one among other people in, in, in the church community. Now, as to this, mm -hmm. this question about women, um, I'm always nervous when this happens, and quite rightly, I think, because these things just keep coming back and coming back and coming back. Lots of us were very worried during the synod on the Amazon because there was a lot of discussion, mm -hmm. as you recall, about married priests or, or deaconesses. And as it turned right. out, those two, um, th those two movements were turned back and they, did not, they were not realized despite the fears of many people. But yet, 
somewhere in the Vatican, I don't believe that this is coming so much from Francis, um, but somewhere in the Vatican there is this effort to keep putting these things forward in the hope that if you discuss them for long enough, somehow people are going to get used to the idea and maybe it will produce a change. I don't think it will under this pope. I think he's held the line to my great surprise after the, the Amazon Synod with all the bizarre Pachamama stuff and, and other mm. things that happened. But for the moment, um, I worry about the discussion, but I don't think Francis is quite there. Mm -hmm. For those who looked away from Pachamama, yeah, just to recall, if you look at where that happened in the calendar, everything that happened afterward was a complete downward spiral in the church and society everywhere. So maybe there was some connection there between old Pachamama and what happened subsequently. Gents, uh, Pope Francis is continuing to reshape the Curia. This week, he announced a reorganization of the current structure of the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, uh, the Vatican's doctrinal office. He created an independent section of the CDF to handle disciplinary matters regarding cases of clerical sex abuse. And under the restructuring, the office of the CDF will operate independent doctrinal and disciplinary sections, each run by a separate secretary. Uh, Father, your thoughts on this reorganization, is it canonically sound, and what does this uh, hope to achieve? Yes, it is canonically sound, and it does reflect the actual current operations of the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith. There are different sections in the congregation to deal with these issues. My concern, or uh, let's say worry, would be if uh, by making these into two uh, autonomous sections and appointing uh, secretaries or heads of these departments that mm -hmm. the prefect who is the cardinal head of it might become a figurehead figure uh, in other words he wouldn't have effective control over those two areas and I hope that's not the case um, and mm -hmm. there's always the problem of creeping bureaucracy when you have too many chiefs uh, decisions can sometimes not be produced either with the you know bold courage that's needed or uh, perhaps the rigor of analysis but in principle there's nothing wrong with this I think uh, mm -hmm. my one question is why is this happening now when we haven't yet gotten right. the general document for the reform of the Roman Curia it seems strange to mm -hmm. me to issue this document so quickly when the entire Curia has been subject to an extensive study for I think the last four or five years and no mm -hmm. no general document in which this would have been placed if it, if they had waited so uh, whatever the Pope's doing, yeah. I, it, it, hopefully it's going to produce good for that, the good order of the, of the church. Bob, this is the most significant restructuring of the CDF in three decades. No personnel changes were announced, um, but the, the prefect, uh, Cardinal Ladaria, is now 77 years old, and there are rumors that Archbishop Charles Shikluna may be in line for leadership. Your thoughts? Well, uh, look, it's, it's good that we have these, this clarity about the lines of responsibility, because uh, as many of us have complained, clarity has not been exactly a hallmark of this papacy. And the fact that we've, we've designated one seg segment is going to be de devoted to doctrine and another to disciplines, I think is a good mm -hmm. start. And our father is right to worry, you know, is this going to add another layer of bureaucracy and people are saying the other mm -hmm. dicasteries and congregations are actually having reductions in personnel and this is one that's actually being beefed up to the surprise of many who actually thought the Secretariat of State might become more powerful. My worry mm -hmm. is, is this, that if it is indeed the case that Shikluna is going to become, is going to replace Cardinal Ladario, 
He is a canon lawyer, no, uh, no knock on canon lawyer's father. But he's a canon <laughs> lawyer and he's not a theologian. And ah. my worry about this, uh, he's, he's, he's a very good guy in several respects. He, he's been the enforcer on abuse cases. He's been the, you know, the guy that they send to Chile or wherever they, they need an investigation. Yep. And he's reliable and he's produced results. My problem, Not so much on doctrine, though, Bob. Yeah, my worry is that in, in Malta, he and the, the other and the cardinal got behind um, Amoris Laetitia with, it, with its weaknesses right. and ambiguities about married people, uh, divorced and remarried people receiving communion. They've also been rather weak on homosexuality. So, if the structure in place is good, but personnel uh, changes make the way that di that that um, that congregation operates in a different direction, personnel is, is policy. Uh, I want to move on to this Vatican financial trial before we run out of time. Uh, this trial resumes on Friday. According to testimony obtained by the Associated Press, one of Pope Francis's top advisors, Archbishop Peña Parra, brought in members of the Italian Secret Service to sweep his office for bugs, and then he commissioned them to file intelligence reports on fellow workers, completely bypassing the Vatican's own police force. Now, prosecutors have accused the Holy See's longtime money manager, Italian brokers, and lawyers of fleecing the Pope for tens of millions in fees and extorting the Vatican for 15 million euros to secure ownership of a London property. This reads like a spy movie. Wiretappings, intrigue. I'm waiting for James Bond to show up. In fact, the AP reports the case details indicate that Pope Francis himself authorized Vatican prosecutors to wiretap Italian citizens on Italian soil. Bob, what gives here? <laughs> well, I mean, you're right that this is like a, a spy novel. We don't know if they did that because they didn't trust the, the, their own Vatican police force that might have been compromised by things in the past, or whether this was something uh, external to the Vatican because they were trying to, to hide something. Look, for me, uh, I, I don't know that this is going to be sorted out. We'll see how the process actually goes in the trial. One of the concrete things that has just come to the fore that, that I think we all do, ought to keep our eye on is that there were two million uh, dollars or euros, I forget, sent to Australia by Cardinal right. Betchu, who is one of the, the uh, people being investigated. And people want to know why he sent this to, and to this company, Newstar, that was involved with some of the, possibly with some of the mm -hmm. wiretapping of Trump. Betchu himself said earlier on it was to, for the, def, the defense of Cardinal Pell. The bishops in Australia said they'd never received that money for that purpose. Pell himself has said his team never received the money for that purpose. Right. So why did that Cardinal two Pell million? Why did that two million dollars or two two million euros get sent to Australia by Betchu? Uh, that to me is going to be a concrete thing that we, if, if we if we don't find out why that happened, then something is seriously awry. Father Jerry, don't you have a—I mean, the Vatican is a, is a city-state. It is its own uh, sovereign country. Isn't there a problem when you have the pope authorizing wiretaps of Italian citizens on Italian soil? I mean, he's crossing uh, a, a, a border there. Well, if that proves to be true, then that is going to cause a problem with the Italian government because that is uh, foreign spying. You know, the Vatican is a sovereign mm -hmm. territory. 
Uh, you know, bringing in the Italian police would lead you to conclude that uh, Peña Parra thought it was the Vatican police that were actually bugging him. So, uh, you know, that's if that's the case, if the police force, the gendarmerie, et cetera, is, is doing wiretapping on its own personnel, we've got a serious problem there. Now, regarding mm -hmm. the $2 million to Australia, I'll make one correction to Bob. Bet you never said the money was for Cardinal Pell's defense. That was his deputy, uh, Monsignor Perlaska. And Perlaska uh, turned uh, state's evidence, so to speak. He's testifying <laughs> on behalf of the prosecution. He said it was for the right. defense. And as Pell said, to Raymond, the Bishop's Conference knows nothing about it. So, you no. know, bet you was hiding behind uh, statements. We can't talk about state secrets and all. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> A cardinal of the Roman Catholic Church spent two years in jail, and you were sending money to Australia to a company that does eavesdropping on private communications. What in the world is going on here? I think Pell is absolutely mm -hmm. right that Betchu must answer. He said he'll answer a trial. I hope the prosecutors really press him. Yeah, well, and the, this connection now to this New Star Group, which is a, you know, a intelligence clearinghouse that was connected to the wiretapping and spying on the Trump administration here in the U.S., th this, uh, uh, this thing has become a new onion that needs to be unpeeled to see who did what and to whom and, and how they were all connected. It's a very fascinating and sad story, I have to say. Before we run out of time, Father Jerry, you have a new book coming. Uh, April 7th. It's called Calming the Storm, an apt title. Uh, give us a little preview. What is it? Sure. It's an interview book with Diane Montagna, who is a Vatican journalist, and uh, she had done an interview book with uh, Bishop Athanasius Schneider of Kazakhstan. I remember. And then, uh, yes, yeah, Scott Hahn asked if uh, she would do an interview book with me. Uh, the Emmaus Road Press is the publisher. Uh, and it is an interview book about many of the things that we talk about on the Papal Posse. So basically, you don't crises say. and <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, we just have a little conversation here, ranging the whole spectrum. But let's say this: the book tries to give people encouragement that number one, Catholic teaching doesn't change with the calendar; it's always the same. Catholic teaching can be applied to new questions, and then we have to look mm -hmm. at society and say Catholics have to be prophetic. We have to stand up against gender ideology, the manipulation of truth, the manipulation of young people in schools and things like that. So we talk about that in this interview book. It'll be out mm. at the, uh, as you say, April 7th, and it's currently available. You can order it uh, Amazon or at Emmaus Road pr uh, Publishing, uh, so you can get an advanced copy. Uh, or I should say that Excellent. you can order a copy, and then it'll be available uh, in about eight weeks. Excellent. Chance, we will leave it there. Thank you for your commentary. And you can find more commentary by Robert Royal and Father Gerald Murray at thecatholicthing.org. And, of course, Father Murray's new book, Calming the Storm, Navigating the Catholic Church and Society, is out April 7th. Thank you both. We'll check in with you soon. Woke ideology is seeping into all aspects of American life. Parents are going to war with school boards over critical race theory. Is America in decline, or is this just a rough patch in our nation's history? Here to discuss is Matt Schlapp, chairman of the American Conservative Union, and Deal Hudson, host of Church and Culture on Ave Maria Radio. Thank you both for being here. They're, they are co-authors of a brand-new book, The Desecrators, Defeating the Cancel Culture Mob and Reclaiming One Nation Under God. Gentlemen, uh, I, I want to start with you, Matt. Uh, who are these desecrators that you identify in the book, and what's their end game? 
Well, I think it's a very niche group of far left radicals, many uh, financiers like George Soros. It seems like you're getting to the question that's the hardest to answer. This uh, attack on everything that's good, that's holy, that's transcendent, that makes people happy, this attack on America, the ultimate result of all these attacks and this destruction and this desecration is chaos, is nihilism, is nothingness, is a world without a strong America. So uh, it's hard to know why they don't understand that that will be the result of all of this, but that's nearest I can tell what they want. Matt, this is your first book, and you're right in the acknowledgments, quote, the America we cherish could crumble, and with it the core freedoms around the globe that America impacts, starting with religious freedom. What makes you feel that we could lose the America we cherish, and why is religious freedom the most vulnerable around the world as a result? Well, I think the reason why we could lose America is because I believe there's more people who think like we do, or at least are in the zone, than want to destroy America and hate parents and hate cops and hate the military. I think the problem is, for too long, we were conditioned to believe that if we were white or straight or Christian, uh, that we or male, we, 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 we didn't have a voice anymore. We needed to shut up and pipe down. We had our time. And, and we did that, too many of us. I take fault in this for myself as well. And, we ceded too much ground to this very niche, small minority, and they have really taken over fast. Look what they're doing in pro sports with Enos Freedom, and look what they're doing at the corporate boardroom on voter ID and other questions. And I just think overseas, you know, Raymond, when we did our CPACs overseas in Asia and South America, everyone said the same thing. Oh, my gosh, if we lose America, we're all doomed. Hmm. Deal, you taught at universities for 15 years. How much of Marxist thinking has been incubated and spread via campuses, via the university setting? Well, Raymond, you hit the nail on the head. And let me add to that. I started my university education in 1967, and I saw all that we're seeing now grow step by step by step. Remember the death of God. Remember mm -hmm. existentialism. Remember the birth of feminism, especially the feminism that was so violently pro-abortion. Remember multiculturalism, which was not that. It was a uh, disguise of wanting to do away with Western grace books-based curriculums. So what we're reaping right now is what has been sown over the last 60 years. And I lived through that to a certain extent. You lived through that and still do in your position. But what we've got to do is say, look, monotheism means something. It means there is one God. There is an absolute. There is right and wrong. There is law. There is civil law that should correspond to God's law. And there is a reality that the mind can know if it conforms the mind to reality. What, what they're teaching in the universities right now is your mind doesn't have to conform. It can construct its own reality. Every individual mm -hmm. can construct the own meaning of existence. That was part of a Supreme Court uh, decision on uh, abortion. So we have in our own Supreme Court enshrined the principles of deconstruction, 
the principles of desecration that we're dealing with right now. Hmm. This week, parents, and it's, it's a great follow-on because, Dio, what you're really speaking to is the consequences of ideas, the consequences of thought and stories that are imparted not only in the university setting, but this week in San Francisco, parents uh, turned out their, their, their school board. Uh, residents have recalled three members of the city school board for what critics called misplaced priorities and putting progressive politics over the needs of children during this pandemic. Is the tide turning from this progressive agenda, Matt? Uh, and, and it seems to be blurring along political lines. Well, when I got up the other morning and saw what happened in San Francisco, I tweeted out, what must it take to be too radical to serve on the San Francisco School Board? Uh, even radical <laughs> voters themselves are saying, hey, this is too much. So is there hope? I say absolutely. Look what happened in the Commonwealth of Virginia where, where we're raising our kids. Um, people just said, I've had enough. And what I see in polling, and I've looked at a lot of polling because it's so interesting to see all the political changes around the country, independents are very close to mirroring Republicans in their views right now. The election this year won't just turn on inflation and bad economics and weakness uh, projected abroad. It's going to turn on woke. It's going to turn on this idea that if you believe in America, that you're racist and that you're a hater, that if you believe in marriage and if you believe in gender, that uh, you're anti-science. That is what this will turn on. What's happening is, is that there's a new coalition that's developed amongst people that aren't necessarily Republicans, they're not necessarily conservatives, they're not all Christians, but they think there's something good and decent decent and needed about America and America's founding. So, Matt, that's an interesting insight. You've been believed this upcoming election, these midterms, are going to be a referendum on wokeism. That's what you're that's saying. That's right. That's right. Okay. And, and also Republicans in San Francisco. Go ahead. Republicans often think everything is about tax cuts and everything is about regulations right. and everything is about judges. Those things are important, but a lot of Republicans are missing what's underneath the most, the strongest motivation to get out there and vote this November. Hmm. Also in San Francisco, Levi's brand president, Jennifer Say, says she was forced out of her job for speaking out publicly against California school closures due to COVID-19. She gave up a million-dollar severance the company had offered her in exchange for signing a non-disclosure agreement about her departure. Now, Say is not a conservative. She was an Elizabeth Warren supporter. I'm going to read this to you, gents. Uh, the comments from Levi's employees picked up about me being anti-science, about me being anti-fat, I'd retweeted a study showing a correlation between obesity and poor health outcomes about me being anti-trans because I tweeted we shouldn't ditch Mother's Day for birthing People's Day because it left out adoptive and stepmoms and about me being racist because San Francisco's public school system was filled with black and brown kids and apparently I didn't care if they died. Meantime, the head of diversity, equity and inclusion at the company asked that I do an apology to her. I told them that the main complaint against me was that I was not a friend of the black community at Levi's. I was told to say that I am an imperfect ally. I refused. Deal, Jennifer Say is the mother of four children, two of whom are black, and she was advocating as a parent to open schools. What's going on in corporate America that they would force her out of the job? And what does it say about the direction of the country politically, Say herself? 
What's going on is this. You alluded to it a, a few minutes ago when you talked about ideas. There are some awful, some nonsensical, incomprehensible Alice in Wonderland ideas that have taken hold in corporate America and, and elsewhere, even in neighborhoods, that somehow you have to stand up, you have to salute people who uh, tell you that you're racist because you're white or tell you you're racist because you're not best friends with the head of the diversity department. These are bad ideas. And I've been speaking to Catholic groups now for 40, over 40 years. And I must say that as I've gone around the country over, over the years, it's very hard to get Catholics engaged in ideas, very hard to get them to think philosophically, theologically. It's so easy to diagnose what is wrong with that, what happened to the CEO of Levi Strauss. It's so easy to see that this is just a shaming process based upon bad ideas that have no credibility, which, if given a chance, could be easily refuted in the public marketplace. No, but what happens? You start arguing with these people, they yell at you at the top of their voice. They cannot argue because they cannot defend their positions. Mm. Matt, uh, I, I've seen the president of Levi's now. She, she's all over media. I see her everywhere uh, talking about her case. Um, and being lionized for standing up and, you know, walking out the door is is I do worry, though, because these figures pop up, whether it's, a, you know, a sports anchor I saw this week or or this uh, president of, of Levi's. There's a lionization of them, perhaps for the wrong reasons. We lionize them for walking out the door and holding to their principles. But they walked out the door, Matt. They're no longer at those companies, which have enormous influence and power. Is that the right thing to celebrate? Well, look, I don't begrudge anybody who's trying to make it work within a Fortune 100 company. But, Raymond, you have to remember, these are the same companies that lined up to make public statements in support of Black Lives Matter, which had about the most anti-Christian uh, policy agenda you could ever imagine and has brought destruction to these cities. These are the same companies that said they will not support Republicans if they support voter ID, because voter ID is racist. So I applaud anybody. Look, I live in the swamp. Anybody that's trying to hang in there and make a difference and turn the tide, I salute them. But let me tell you something very clearly. When doctors are mm -hmm. being fired because they uh, want to put out the truth, the medical truth on how to fight the virus, or when cops are being fired because they won't be forced to take a vaccine or teach uh, CRT, uh, when teachers and coaches are getting fired because they, they believe in gender uh, and they believe in these basic truths, we have a great American emergency where people's constitutional rights are being destroyed left and right and left and right. And for many of us, it's going to mean we're going to have to find a way to do our professions as sole, propri sole proprietors. It's like what people have to do in schools. You have to pull your kids out of these schools. These schools are just going to destroy the minds of your kids. We're going to have to associate in new ways. There is a great change going on around this country, and the pandemic has just hastened it. The, the Mississippi State Senate passed legislation last month deal to deal with, uh, and Matt just brought it up, critical race theory being taught in any school in their state, including at the university level. Now, several other states are considering banning CRT. Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt 
was the first governor in the country to ban critical race theory from state classrooms. He had this to say about his bill. I don't know how you could argue with it. It simply says that we're not going to teach in Oklahoma that one sex or one race is superior to another race. Uh, and we're not going to teach a first grader in Oklahoma that they're somehow responsible uh, for something that happened 100 years ago. Now, Deal, C CRT uh, was introduced into law school classrooms in the mid-70s as a theory. And it came from the writings of several American legal scholars and was discussed at the university level. How did CRT move from there to the elementary school setting? Because the educational elites, both at the level of accrediting institutions, teachers' unions, and all these uh, for-profit businesses that line up to write and publish textbooks and programs and so forth, uh, they saw an opportunity to capitalize on, the, frankly, the Obama presidency and offer a product that would drive a wedge even deeper between white and black America. Frankly, a wedge that had been growing narrower and narrower since the days of Martin Luther King. And the thing about critical race theory, it's just built on a basic lie. Not only is it racist, as the, that governor just said, but the lie is that the United States of America was founded primarily in order to protect the institution of slavery. If you've ever studied the opinions of the founders, the debate at the Constitutional Convention over slavery, their personal positions and so forth, you'll realize that the opposite is the case. The country was founded in spite of the fact that there were certain Southern members of the Constitutional Convention that insisted on slavery being uh, kept legal. And there was a clear majority of members of that convention that said, we will let you have it for the time being, but it's going to be gone and it's going to be gone pretty soon. Mm. Matt, in the book you write about the BLM movement and how in 2020 the organization received over $90 million in donations for advocating things like the end of the Western model of the family. Now, since 2020, Patrice Cullors, who was BLM's foundress, has stepped down after calls for an investigation from her own staff. Uh, her purchase of four homes for, you know, $3.2 million were called into question. A report in the New York Post this week about the organization points out that there seems to be no one in charge of the group today and no accounting for the estimated $60 million still in its coffers. Matt, how much damage did the BLM organization do vis-a-vis -vis racial relations and harmony? And did the media play a role here? Yeah, for sure. I think there's a lot of guilty parties, Raymond. I don't think they don't have as one of their goals racial harmony. They, they, they're revolutionaries. Uh, they wanted to separate us by race, and they wanted to separate us by religion. Um, and I will remind you that they're also anti-Semitic and against the state of Israel. You name the, the institutional idea uh, that's important to building community, and, and they were against it. And I think the saddest thing was for me is I worked with so many companies that got rid of their relationship with me because I criticized BLM for their attacks on people of faith, on family, on marriage. And uh, they, accu they accused me of being racist because I was being Christian. 
And that is a division that is growing with these radicals, these desecrators in this country. Raymond, the saddest thing of all is, is that, as I said, I live outside Washington, D.C. It is a broken, brittle, blue city. And these, these blue cities run by socialists are breaking down much because of crime. Crime has exploded ever since cops were defunded. Remember, their number one goal wasn't making cops better, adding to training, trimming their budgets, defunding those budgets. And all this money they raised, they all bought their million-dollar homes. So one is going to jail for voter fraud. But the thing that's the saddest is those people of color, those kids of color, no one got a laptop. No one got a scholarship to go to a better school. No pastor got a little extra money for after-school programs or for counseling. Mm. Nobody got money to actually help the people they said they wanted to help. And to help the black family. In fact, they did the opposite. Right. They were trying to dismantle right. it, which is disgraceful. Disgraceful. Deal, uh, I want to get into something you, you opined on earlier. I wish we had more time for this. The role of Catholic leadership in the United States. Uh, and Catholics and the role they play in the country's politics. You write in the book that the Catholic bishops during the 2016 elections, quote, during the 2016 election, I watched with disbelief as all but a few Catholic bishops said nothing in complicit silence as Hillary Clinton aggressively pro-abortion ran for president. Instead, I watched bishops attack Donald Trump on immigration, and his promise to build a wall on the Mexican border. Deal, how do you explain the majority of bishops using your term, complicit silence, politically speaking? Well, I'd like to point out that the effect of the kind of bishops we've had collectively, not everybody, not everybody individually, is President Joe Biden and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. The American bishops have created those kinds of Catholics. That's how they've turned out. Why? Because they have failed to challenge them on all variety of teachings, beginning with life. And the bishops mm -hmm. have, uh, somewhere along the way, I, I have a book that I wrote about it, basically joined a partnership with the Democrat Party. And in, implicit in that partnership was, we are not going to criticize Democratic leaders, especially Democrat Catholic leaders. I remember how much uh, dust you shook up when you criticized the funeral of Senator Ted Kennedy being held at St. Matthew's Cathedral in Washington, another product of the American bishops. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not as hard on the bishops in that book, either as Matt, than I could have been. It's been an utter failure of leadership, beginning with life, but also just the fundamental distinction between what it is that all Catholics should do on certain issues versus the options that Catholics can have on other issues, those in which mm -hmm. involve basic principles, and there are different solutions to different problems. And yeah. you can disagree, but on basic principles of life, of uh, embryos, anything connected to, to human life, there is no argument, and there's only one way to make mm -hmm. decisions on those issues. Matt, in the book, you all point out that Forming Consciences uh, document that the bishops put out every time there's an election, and that there's a lot of wiggle room there. It says, yes, you should support life, but um, what message does that send to Catholics? And how much responsibility do the bishops bear for the first pro-choice Catholic president in American history? 
Yeah, I very much agree with what Deal just said. Um, you know, we're reaping what we sowed. We we made it sound like it was a matter of conscience to decide whether or not you thought that we should have this mass genocide against unborn children, which now kills more black babies in New York City than, than, than uh, are born. These are tragic um, numbers that are out there in society. And we've taught a couple of generations of young people that life is easily discarded. What a shock that so many of them uh, are tossing away their own lives with drug overdoses just going mm -hmm. off the charts. So th this Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, uh, with the genuflection of too many leadership in our church, acquiescence, I guess I should say, to this idea that life is just a political decision that we decide, well, I'm for it or I'm against it. It seeps into every element of society. And what we're seeing is a tragic sadness throughout uh, young people who have this whole great big life to look forward to, and they're throwing it away, and they're throwing away the lives of too many unborn children. And, you know, mm. I just don't believe that God's going to honor people who have as their basis, remember the basis, the sacrament of the Democratic Party today is abortion. Mm -hmm. That's the basis for everything they do on their side and the build out of their coalition. And I think it is, it's evil and we ought to call it what it is. Deal and then Matt, uh, at the end of the book, you go through steps that Americans can take to reclaim one nation under God and put religious freedoms back in the public square. Um, I, I, I want your take in our remaining moments about what people can do. But I also want to posit, you ask people to save, essentially save the republic. But one has to be honest, and I think you are, and say people get the representatives that reflect their hearts and their soul. And if a society is debased, their representatives are going to follow suit. So how can they save themselves when they're lost? Deal. Well, in fact, they can. And there's several reasons why. There is, first of all, natural law, which is alive and well in the human heart, regardless of how mm -hmm. people want to define it. Secondly, there's education, and I, I can't stress uh, any more than I have how important it is to get teachers in schools that aren't going to continually make you know, third graders question their, their gender. So what you have is this, this uh, process whereby students who are ba maybe basically conservative go to a university, they're liberalized, and they go on to be go to teachers' colleges and they're more liberalized, or they go into journalism school and they end up running CNN. So you get the reason why so many of the elites are at the head of the woke wokeness and the cancel culture crowd is because they were educated that way. That's what they think is true. And so we have to begin to care enough about ideas to say, okay, I'm going to sit down tonight and I'm going to look up the meaning of freedom in the Catholic catechism. And what I'm going to find out is freedom doesn't mean the freedom to do anything you like. The freedom means you are connected directly to God's will, and you're, you're trying to be obedient to God's law. Then you're free. You're not free mm. when you simply try to define the meaning of your own existence. Mm. Matt, I'll give you the last word. How is someone going to get a job in one of these companies unless they go along with all the stuff that's against their faith? How are they going to get ahead and get to a great school if they disagree on all these basic principles? They're simply not going to get those positions. And I think it's making all of us wake up to say, 
We might have almost lost America, but it's that almost. It's that almost that's the springboard to get it back. Uh, gentlemen, thank you. We will leave it there. The desecrators defeating the cancel culture mob and reclaiming One Nation Under God by Matt Schlapp and Deal Hudson is available now at bookstores everywhere and online. Thank you. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thank you for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.